Let's, let's pray, and then we'll move on in our sermon today. Uh, Father, as we enter into this time where we read your word, it's a rather complicated one. I pray that you would guide our hearts and that you would help us understand and see the rich truths in it so that we would um, once again understand and be reminded of the purpose of our lives. Help us do so, Father, and illuminate these truths that it will not just be a cause to study, but it will also be a cause to sing and worship and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're continuing today in our series in the book of Acts. We're currently on chapter 19. Let me just say this before we begin this sermon. When I write sermons, there's a few rules that I try to follow. I try to avoid doing a few things. One of those things is I try to avoid getting too technical, right, with the passage because it can just get too complicated for those who are listening in 30 minutes for the first time on Sunday morning. Another thing I try to avoid is I try to avoid making the sermon about a very, very, very specific current modern issue. Why? Because it'll end up being relevant for some people, but then it'll kind of exclude a lot of other people who may not have been affected by that issue. And also mainly because the original writer back then probably didn't have that issue in mind when they were writing it because it's a modern issue, right? It didn't exist yet back then, so that's not kind of the point that they're trying to make. But I'm going to break those two rules today, okay? Because I really don't know how to preach this passage without, one, getting technical because this passage won't make sense to you unless you have a bigger understanding of the book of Acts, okay? So I do have to get a bit techie on this one. All right, and, and the second thing, I also don't know how to, how to uh, preach this passage without addressing this issue because it does touch on a, a very specific modern issue that's just way too widely misunderstood, especially in the wider church context of our culture today, and it's the issue of the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, if you're here today and you're going... Honestly, Tez, this is my first time at church in a while. A friend invited me, and I'm getting weirded out already. You said the second Baptist church of what? And you, and you don't know what I'm talking about, all right? Don't worry. This is relevant for you. It will still matter. Let me just explain what it is and why it's important. The second baptism of the Holy Spirit is this doctrine that many churches around the world really got from our passage today in Acts 19 that we're going to read. And it, and, it, and it says that if you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you truly, but then you get baptized with water and just water, that's not enough. Some will say that you're not really saved yet. You don't really have a relationship with God until God sends his Holy Spirit upon you, and then you kind of experience this ecstatic uh, uh, kind of experience that the people in our passage experience. Um, and that's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Okay, you're going to start speaking in tongues, prophesying, and you're going to do everything that people in Acts 19 here uh, were doing. And that's when you get saved. Not when you first believe, but the second baptism. And, and this, I think, has really confused a lot of Christians. A lot of people have been hurt, and living, they've lived in anxiety, in some cases even depression. Because a lot of people who really have received Christ as Lord and Savior, right, they got baptized and and they've never experienced this kind of ecstatic experience, and they're thinking in their heads, what's wrong with me? You know, why, haven't God, why hasn't God accepted me? Why am I not yet in a relationship with me? Why hasn't he proved me? So if you're a Christian here today, I hope you'll find relief 
from the unnecessary guilt that has or may come from being exposed to this doctrine. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you don't think this is relevant at all to you, don't, don't tune out just quite yet. Hopefully, from this passage, you'll see that the Bible and Christianity is a lot more reasonable than people often make it out to be. Okay? So let's get into it. This is the Word of God, taken from Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Thus says the Lord. Okay. Usually I have three points. There's only two points that I'm going to bring out from our passage today about the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 19, okay? Point one, the Holy Spirit here did not come to save, but to expand God's gospel mission. That's it. The Holy Spirit in Acts 19 didn't come to save, but to expand God's gospel mission, all right? First point, the Holy Spirit here didn't come to save. So the first thing a lot of people quickly conclude from this passage is that they say this. Look at the order, right? First, these 12 people were baptized with water, verse 3 says. But the Holy Spirit or God's presence or God's stamp of approval didn't come upon them until they experienced the second baptism of the Holy Spirit in verse 5. Not with water, right, but with the Spirit. And it made them speak in tongues and do all these ecstatic things. So the conclusion is, therefore, that if you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but you've only been baptized with water, and you haven't spoken in tongues or prophesied, that means you don't have a relationship with God yet. Or maybe you're still, at best, a subpar Christian, right? A lower-level Christian. And I, I've had coffee with a Christian who's been brought tears to tears in public, because their whole life, they've been surrounded by this pressure. They keep asking themselves, what, what's wrong with me? Why don't I have, why isn't God embracing me as his own? I haven't experienced this. And I want to propose to you today a different understanding of this passage that might soothe your angst, whether or not you've experienced it in the past or you will in the future when you're confronted with this doctrine, okay? I want to propose that these 12 people here in Acts chapter 19, they were actually already saved, they were already born-again Christians even before they experienced the second baptism of the Spirit, okay? Prove it. Here we go. First, these 12 people in verse 1, read it again, were described as what? As disciples. Verse 1, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. 
Now, Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Acts that we're studying right now, uses this phrase, disciples, in the book of Acts 30 different times. And every single time he uses it, he always refers to born-again true believers, Christians who've received Christ and who's been washed clean from their sin through the blood of Christ and have a relationship with God. For example, just skip to verse 9. Even in the very same passage today, Luke uses the word disciples again to describe a Christian believer. Verse 9, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them, from the unbelievers, and took the disciples with him. You see that? The same word. So, verse 9, Luke very explicitly separates the disciples from those who were stubborn and continued in their unbelief. The disciples, in other words, were not those who were stubborn in unbelief. There were those who believed. So it's very unlikely that Luke uses the phrase disciples throughout the book of Acts 29 other times to refer to true born-again believers, and one of those times in the very same passage, just eight verses after verse 1. But for some reason, this one time in Acts chapter 19, verse 1, he's using it to refer to non-believers. You've got to make huge theological leaps to get there. It's very unlikely. That's the first clue. The disciples who received this baptism of the Holy Spirit were already true believers. Second, look at Paul's question to these 12 people in verse 2. Paul asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you, what? Believed. Okay? So not only are these people described as disciples, but also as disciples who believe. But believe in what? Some have asked here, which is a very good question. Intuitive. Because if you look at verse 3, it seems like they only believe in John the Baptist and not in Jesus. Look at verse 3. Paul asked them, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So some take this as these 12 people were only the disciples. They believed, yes, but they believed in John the Baptist, not in Jesus. But that claim is also very, very unlikely. Why? Because if you read what John the Baptist did in his ministry, Who's the one person that he always talks about? Who's the one person that John the Baptist always points to? It's Jesus. In John chapter 1, some people ask John the Baptist, are you the Christ? What'd he say? No, I'm not. I'm just prepping the way for him. Soon will come he who is greater than I, John the Baptist said in Matthew chapter 3, referring to Jesus. When he saw Jesus walk by, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. I must decrease so that he might increase. It is almost impossible for these 12 people to be students of John the Baptist, but yet have never heard about Jesus, to when they were baptized, John the Baptist Baptist baptized them into himself. That's very unlikely. Okay, being baptized into John's baptism just means that John the Baptist baptized them. It doesn't mean that they didn't know about Jesus or John the Baptist baptized himself, okay? There's a lot more to it, but for now, let's just summarize what we've seen so far about these 12 people. One, they're disciples. Verse 1 said, a word Luke uses in the book of Acts 29 other times to describe born-again believers. They're believers, verse 2 said, and not just in John the Baptist, but if they're students of John, they would have known about Jesus. They're disciples who believed in Jesus. Everything so far points to the fact that these 12 people were born again Christians. Now I'm going to get a little more technical in, in point number two, but for now, 
Just take a deep breath and find peace. The fact that just because you can't speak in tongues, just because you haven't experienced this ecstatic kind of experience these people experienced in Acts 19, that doesn't mean you're not saved. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. That doesn't mean that you are still guilty of your sin and that God has not yet accepted you as his own. The Bible explicitly says over and over again, the second you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in your heart, that means the Holy Spirit is in you. And the forgiveness of sins purchased by Jesus on the cross on your behalf has been applied to you. A few passages I want to point out, just one maybe, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. It should be behind me here. It says this, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What does this verse say is the proof that the Holy Spirit is in you? That you speak in tongues? No, but that you can cry out to God as what? Abba, Father. Now read this verse again carefully. Who's the one crying out, Abba, Father, from your heart? And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Who's the one crying out? The spirit. How, may I ask, did a sinner like you and a sinner like me, who's done all the things we've done, how did we get the courage to think that the God of the universe wants to be our Father? How dare you? How dare you? How dare I? How incredibly presumptuous of us. Where in the world did we get the courage to think that the forgiveness on the cross is offered to the likes of us? Where did that courage come from? From the Spirit. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Romans 8, 15. If you believe that Jesus died for you and he's paid for all of your sins, if you believe that through his blood, the God of the universe is now no longer your judge, but your father, that means you have the Holy Spirit in your heart. Just because you can't speak in tongues doesn't mean you're not saved and you lack the spirit. What the Holy Spirit did here in Acts chapter 19 to these 12 people wasn't about salvation at all. It wasn't even about Christian growth. It was about something completely different. What was it about? Second point. It was about gospel mission. The Holy Spirit here in Acts chapter 19 didn't come to save these 12 people. He came to expand God's gospel mission. To make the second point as clear as I can, let me start this way. Different writers in the Bible can talk about the same thing or the same person differently through different angles, right? The four Gospels, for example, that we have in the beginning of the New Testament, those are just four different stories 
about the same Jesus, but talked about through four different angles because they have four different reasons why they're writing it, four different emphasis, four different people they're writing to. Matthew, for example, the Gospel of Matthew, for him, Jesus was the promised Old Testament Messiah who has come. That's why the Gospel of Matthew started with what? A genealogy, right? That's the point he's trying to make. For John, Jesus was God who became man. He's really God who put on flesh. That was his main point. For Luke, Jesus was the savior of all people, not just the Jews. Different emphasis about the same person. Does that mean that Luke doesn't believe in Mark's emphasis or that John doesn't believe in Luke's emphasis? No. You see, they're just writing about the same person through different angles for different purposes. Okay. With that in mind, what angle do you think the book of Acts here, written by Luke, is wanting to emphasize when he talks about the Holy Spirit? The emphasis he has is not about salvation and Christian growth. The Bible does talk about the Holy Spirit as a saving angel, right? As we read in our liturgy earlier, as the one that regenerates our hearts so we can receive Christ. Yes, we read it. That's taken from Galatians and Romans. But Galatians and Romans were written by who? Paul, not Luke. Paul had a different emphasis when he talks about the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about the Holy Spirit in relation to salvation. But Luke talks about the Holy Spirit not in relation to salvation, in relation to gospel mission, okay? All right. Where do we see that from our passage today? We see that in the fact that Luke mentions the number of people here who received the Holy Spirit, and there's 12 people. That's important. Look at the end of verse 7 of our passage. How many people did the Holy Spirit come upon here and give this kind of experience to? 12. Keep that number in mind. Okay, this is where it gets a bit technical. You ready? As if it hasn't been technical enough. I apologize. I think it'll be worth it. Okay. Let's take a look at the first time Luke mentions the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. It was in chapter 1. And even then, the Holy Spirit is already talked about in the context of gospel mission. In Acts chapter 1, 8, I believe it's here. This, many will argue, is the thesis statement for the whole book. You know when you write an essay, you have a thesis statement in the introduction, then the essay kind of explains it? This is the thesis statement of the book of Acts, okay? Luke says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. Gospel mission, where? In three areas, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, okay? So when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Luke's emphasis, he'll empower you to be my witnesses, witnesses of the gospel, to share about Jesus, where? Starting from the center of Jerusalem to the Judea Samaria to the ends of the earth. And this three-tier symbolic mission plan, it was accomplished throughout the book of Acts. Guess where the Holy Spirit first entered the scene in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2? Where did something crazy like this, where people start speaking in tongues and stuff like that, where did it happen to? At. at. Jerusalem. First tier of our mission statement, right? And guess how many people it happened to? Twelve, the twelve disciples of Jesus. The second time the Holy Spirit came like this in the book of Acts, guess where it was? In Acts chapter 8, in Judea, Samaria. The second tier of our mission work. And the third time the Holy Spirit came to the people and people started speaking in tongues and do crazy things like this, where was it? In Acts chapter 10, it was in Caesarea, a city where there's almost no Jewish people there, which symbolizes the ends of the earth. Okay? So it started in the center of Jerusalem to 12 people. 
And then it spread. Second time it happened, it was in Judea and Samaria. The third time it happened, it was in Caesarea, which is the ends of the earth. Okay, stick with me. We're almost there. And now in Acts chapter 19, it happened again. For the fourth time. Where? In Ephesus. And at this point, all of us, the readers, are meant to go. Hold on a second. That's, that's four times then. It's said that the Holy Spirit will do this in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, in Judea, Samaria, Acts chapter 8, ends of the earth, Acts chapter 10. So then after Acts chapter 8, it, it should be done, right? Why is it happening again for a fourth time here in Ephesus? And the clue is found in the fact that it happened here again to 12 people, just like it did when it first happened in the original center, which is in Jerusalem. Okay, now we've arrived, all right? What do you think God's trying to communicate here? By copying and pasting the events in the original center of gospel mission work, Jerusalem, where the Holy Spirit came upon the 12 disciples of Jesus, what's the point? Why is it now happening again in Ephesus to 12 people again? It's a literary technique. God's trying to tell us that the Holy Spirit is not only going to empower God's people to be gospel witnesses to the world from the center region of Jerusalem, he's saying that the Holy Spirit can move the center of gospel mission itself to anywhere he wants in the world. Ephesus, Jakarta, anywhere. Christianity has no one cultural or geographical center. Not one race of people or language or culture has monopoly over the gospel. That, that's the point. Not only will it spread from the center, but the center of its spreading itself will change. And we see this play out in history, don't we? In the past hundred years or so, the West has been the main place where Bible teachers and pastors and missionaries come out from. But recently, the rest of the world has actually been sending out more missionaries, seminary professors, Bible teachers to the West more and more. Our very own Grace Utanto, one of them, that's new. I'm not saying Indonesia is the next center. No one knows. The point is, it can be anywhere. You know, people who study world religion, they've always been baffled by the Christian movement because other worldviews or religions, they may spread to many places, but the center of that worldview or religion, it never moves. Generally speaking, the majority of the literature and teachers and, and big figures of that world religion comes from the same place. But Christianity, the center of it, won't stay still. Yeah, it started in Jerusalem, which is Central Asia, right, modern-day Turkey area, I guess. But then it moved to Rome, and I'm not a historian, so I don't know these facts specifically, but it did move to Rome during Emperor Constantine's time. And then I think it moved to places like North Africa. A lot of us are reading a book from Augustine, who's from North Africa. Then it moved to the rest of Europe. And then it moved to South America and North America. And now, I don't know. It's debatable. It's interesting. A Christian historian named Alex Ryrie wrote a recently, I think 2020, published a really good book. 
called Christianity, a Historical Atlas. It's like a big book. It's thin, has pictures and maps. Really interesting if you guys want to go get it. And it traces the Christian movement throughout the centuries, and he says something interesting. He said, as a Christian in the populations in the global north, so if you view globe, the global north decline, the global south, he says, is coming to them and bringing its churches with it. It's a phenomenon many have called reverse mission, where Christians in Asia and the global south are sending people to revive secular Europe. Another Christian historian also observed the center of Christianity moving. He uses the same phrase, the global south. And look, these peoples aren't looking at stars and horoscopes, right, and like predicting. No, (laughs) they're looking at raw empirical historical data, where churches were and where they're moving to, where they're at now. I was in a church missions conference. I think it was 2018, right before um, the pandemic hit. And it was in Malaysia. And a pastor that a lot of you may know about was there. His name's Tim Keller. Um, and he was, he was there. He, he has this church planning movement thing, and he was doing a support raising thing in Malaysia to help church plants across the globe um, get funds to operate. And I don't think he, he was saying this just to get more money from us Asians. I, I really don't think that was the purpose. But I remember him distinctively say, and some of you here came with me to that. He said this, Look, for the past 100 years or so, most church plants and funds for church plants came from the U.S. and came from the West. But it's awfully hard to look at the data today, he said, as he looked at us, a bunch of Southeast Asians in the eye. It's awfully hard to look at the data today and deny the fact that you're next. You're next. It's like we're playing pickup basketball or something, you know? You're up. <laughs> and look, he's not making a certain claim. None of these people know for sure where it's at, okay? They're just making rough guesses based on empirical data. The, the point is, we're not trying to speculate here. The point is, what these people are saying is the point that our passage in Acts chapter 19 is trying to make. It's also the point that historical data itself seems to be making, that the center of the gospel movement can go anywhere. The center moves. Which, by the way, is not a conclusion I jump to just by the number 12. It's what the rest of our passage talks about as well. Look at verses 8 to 10, the second half of our passage. We see Paul there first preaching the gospel, where? At a Jewish synagogue for three months. But then, verse 9 says, none of the Jews there wanted to hear the gospel. They rejected it. So what did Paul do? He left the Jewish synagogue and he started preaching the gospel from what? A Greek city hall named Tyrannus. You see, verses 8 to 10 of our passage is just making the same point verses 1 to 7 is making. Paul's gospel center preaching movement moved from a Jewish synagogue to a Greco-Roman city hall. The Holy Spirit can use anyone, anywhere he wants. MNC Tower, another mall, another suburb, village somewhere. We don't know. He can use anyone. He can even use you. That's the point. Now, usually, a sermon like this ends with this big call, right, for people, you know, 
to be centers of gospel movement in their families, a big call for you to be centers of gospel movement in your workplace, which are all very good applications from this passage. We should spend more time doing that. We should spend more time thinking about creative ways to winsomely expose people in our circles, in our friend groups, to the gospel. But let me, let me close with this as well. One of the authors I mentioned earlier um, that wrote about the Christian history, history movement, he, he said this, there's no sure pattern to predict where the center of Christianity or the gospel will kind of move and when it'll leave a region and when it'll go to another. There's no pattern. We shouldn't be guessing and you know, playing that game. But there's this one theme that seems to always be true. He said, the gospel always moves away from a culture that's grown self-sufficient. The gospel always moves away from a culture that's grown self-sufficient. And he didn't just mean economically. He also meant morally, philosophically, culturally. Whenever a group of people or a culture seem to forget that they're in need of saving, when they become self-sufficient, the gospel seems to move on which is what happened in verse 9, right? These religious people in the synagogue didn't feel like they need saving. They felt like their religion was enough. They felt like their good works was enough to save themselves. They had no room for a cross. Paul left them. Friends, there's a lot of things in our lives that can slowly push the cross away out of the center of our lives. And it doesn't usually happen immediately. It happens gradually. Many things will make us forget that we're weak. Perhaps you started making a lot more money than you're used to. Maybe you got a good, new, promising career. Maybe you're a part of a growing church in the middle of a big city. Maybe it's your friend group connections. Maybe your family got tons of assets. Maybe you're very, very religious and you're a very good person. A lot of things in your life can make the cross seem unnecessary. If you want the Holy Spirit to make you into a gospel spring of life to the people around you, then you must never grow self-sufficient. Never become self-sufficient. You must never think that there's ever a point in your life where there's no longer need for the blood of Christ. Verse 10 of our passage says that Paul continues to become the center of gospel preaching for two years in Ephesus. And then it says, to where all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, Paul continued to be a life-giving gospel presence to the people around him for two years, for the rest of his life. Why? Because he never grew self-sufficient. There is always room for a cross in his life, whatever stage he's at. Let me end with Paul's words at the end of his life, right? In one of the last letters that he wrote, the letter to the Romans, the church in Rome, he said this. This is Paul. He said, wretched man that I am. Paul, wretched? Who will deliver me from this body of death? I myself serve the law of God with my mind, 
but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul, you, you're a wretched person and you think that you're a sinner? After all you've done, after all you've served Jesus with in your life, he said, I'm a wretched man and I only have one hope for salvation, not in my serving of Jesus, not in how many times I've served the church, not in how much money I've given, not in how many churches I've planted. He said this, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. After everything he's done for Jesus in his life, he said his only hope to be free from sin is through the blood of Christ. And that's why everywhere he went, the aroma of the gospel followed him. Lift your eyes, friends, daily to Calvary and never forget, never forget what made the judge of the universe stop looking at you like a criminal. What made him gaze at you differently? What made him now look at you as a father would look upon his child? It's not your religion, it's not your efforts. Because his son bled and died in your place, in my place. Let that sink in daily, then burst forth as a center of living water to the people around you. Let's pray. Father, the only reason why we would hear the gospel of the message offered to us like today, this Sunday morning, the only reason why we would be lured toward it and we find it to be reasonable and we find it to make sense and we find this to somehow click in our heads and our hearts is not because anything in ourselves, but it's because you have spent your spirit to give us the kind of eyes to see and the kind of ears to hear your truth. So to you, Christ, we're indebted but the scripture also says that to the Holy Spirit we're indebted and to the Father we're indebted. Our salvation from beginning to end planned, um, purchased, and applied on that cross. Thank you and may this gospel truth never grow old or boring in our lives that we may walk around like Paul did as an aroma of the gospel to the people around us as the Spirit empowers us to be the witnesses of the cross wherever we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.